Well, I think nearly all of us are interested in the concept of an inheritance, both ours as well as someone else's, but we are especially fascinated by accounts of people who receive a substantial inheritance unexpectedly and how this windfall changes their lives for good or ill. And as we watch it over a period of time, we realize that most of the time it changes it more for ill than for good. The Apostle Peter, however, tells us about the inheritance promised to Christians and how this inheritance in the future should change our lives upon the earth here and now. After the opening salutation of his epistle in verses 1 and 2, Peter praises God for the blessings of salvation in verses 3 through 12, all one sentence in the Greek language, though broken into Shorter sentences in our English translations. And so this is a big description of salvation, and there are a lot of elements to it. But in the portion that we are looking at today, it describes salvation primarily in terms of an eternal inheritance. If I told you of an earthly inheritance, especially one that you had some prospect of sharing in, you would be all ears. Well, I hope you will be equally attentive as I tell you about a heavenly inheritance and one that you have prospect of inheriting and one that is far more valuable and far more lasting than any possible inheritance here upon the earth. And if you're not interested in this one, then what does that tell your own heart about your condition before the Lord? In our passage today, we're going to try to address three areas. Number one, how do we qualify for a heavenly inheritance? Number two, what is the nature of the heavenly inheritance? And third, how are, how are we preserved to receive it? First, how do we qualify for a heavenly inheritance? And we read in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Has begotten us again. And the answer to the question, how do we qualify for a heavenly inheritance, is through the new birth. We must be born again. God in his mercy, Peter writes to the Christians scattered throughout the territories mentioned in verse 1, God has begotten us again. God has birthed us to life. And so the way we receive the heavenly inheritance is similar to how people generally qualify for an earthly inheritance, namely by being born into a qualifying family. If you, by the act of birth show up in the right family that has something to bequeath, then in all probability you may inherit a portion of that wealth. It's not guaranteed, of course, but usually in the earth that's the way it works. In God's system, that's always the way it works. You must become a member of God's family if you are going to have any portion in this heavenly inheritance. And that, of course, brings us to consider briefly what the new birth involves. 
Because everything else that we're going to talk about today depends upon the new birth. And so what does that involve? Well, to be a recipient of the new birth, you must receive the life of God. God has to breathe divine life into your soul. We are begotten again by Him. According to His abundant mercy, He has begotten us again. So, number one, you must receive the life of God. And number two, you must be placed into the family of God. In earthly matters, the second automatically follows the first. If you are born at all, then you are born into some family. You are born into whatever family your your parents are identified with, and you become a part of that family. In God's way of doing things, there is a necessary and unbreakable connection between the new birth and being placed in his family. And yet, the Bible indicates that this is actually a two-step process. There is the new birth that gives us life, and then there is the formal adoption of those who have been born again into the family of God. Because we were not naturally born sons of God. We are not his natural children. God has only one natural son, one son who shares his nature, who has shared his very nature from the beginning, who has always been of the same nature as God. God has one son, and he came to earth, and he was incarnated, and we know him as Jesus the Christ. And so God, in the miracle of the new birth, breathes divine life into the souls of those who were born outside the family of God, born as natural sons of Adam, not as natural sons of God. And then God formally, legally adopts those very ones into his family so that we become partakers not only of the divine nature, but also of the divine inheritance. So you must receive the life of God. You must be placed into the family of God. You must be related to God's only natural son, Jesus Christ. God births us into his family and he makes us brothers to Christ. He makes us joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as his natural son, stands to inherit everything that belongs to the Father But God in his mercy has brought other sons, fallen sons of Adam, but redeemed by his grace. God has brought other sons into his family and made them brothers to Jesus Christ and joint heirs to the inheritance which belongs to his own beloved son. And so if you're going to be a part of this inheritance, you must be related to God's only natural son, Jesus Christ. You have to come to God through Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Everything is connected to Christ. And all of our potential blessings come to us because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. You've got to be joined to Him. And then finally, what does a new birth involve? Well, you must receive the mercies of God. It is an act of mercy. 
that constitutes sinful sons of Adam, sons of God. God, who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is an act of God's mercy. It is an act of God's grace. Which means what? Well, it surely means, among other things, that to receive it, we must humble ourselves. We must acknowledge our need. We must seek God's favor. Human pride is such that we don't like to humble ourselves before anyone, even God. But if we're going to receive this inheritance, if we're going to have any portion in this inheritance, we must be willing to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. We must be willing to acknowledge ourselves as needy sinners who have no righteousness of our own and no way to lay hold upon Christ and upon the blessings of heaven and all that are all the things that are involved in this eternal inheritance. We must be willing to seek Christ, to seek Him as a gift, to seek Him as an act of God's favor, given freely to hell-deserving sinners who beg God for mercy. We don't come claiming our goodness. We don't come and say, God, look what I have done. Look at the good things that I have done. Look at the religion that I have pursued. Look at the church that I have belonged to. Look at the righteousness that I have accumulated. If we are counting upon any of those things, we disqualify ourselves from this heavenly inheritance because God doesn't give it to anyone who thinks himself to be righteous or worthy. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The whole have no need of a physician, but the sick. And so the heavenly physician comes and tends to those who call for him, who cry out to him, who say, help, help, help. I'm doomed. I'm lost. I'm sinful. I'm deserving of your condemnation. But, oh God, do you have any mercy for me? And God is abundant in mercy. And he does have mercy for sinners who cast themselves humbly and believingly upon Jesus Christ. You see, you can't produce your own new birth any more than you could produce your first physical birth. You can't do it. You can't accomplish it. You can't bring it about. But God can. God has the power. And God is a God of great mercy, and he delights in doing exactly this. God, who is plenteous in mercy, delights to bestow salvation, life, inheritance upon sinners, all sinners who will acknowledge their need, all sinners, regardless of background, regardless of station in life, regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of any of these human factors, all sinners who will humble themselves before God and turn from their sins and cast themselves upon the mercy of Christ, all sinners who go to God through Jesus Christ in faith. Qualify for the heavenly inheritance of which Peter speaks. My second question is, what is the nature of the heavenly inheritance? And frankly, there's much about it that we do not know. And there's much about it that the Bible does not reveal. 
But there are some things that the Bible tells us about this heavenly inheritance, and we learn a few of those in our passage before us. We learn, first of all, that the heavenly inheritance is in some respects similar to an earthly inheritance. That's why we have this language used and this implied analogy drawn. God, who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance. And the Holy Spirit of God moved upon Peter to choose a word that his readers would immediately identify with an earthly legacy, an inheritance. This is a word that talks about wealth passed down. This talks about an estate. This speaks of a legacy of some kind. It is the very word, the very Greek word that is used in the Septuagint of Israel's possession in the land of Canaan. That was a real inheritance promised first to Abraham and then brought to fulfillment in the lives of his sons. And the twelve tribes of Israel all inherited their allotted portion of that land, that inheritance. And then all of the families of the tribe had their tribal portion divided up. And every family received a certain portion of that land. That was their inheritance, which they then passed down from generation to generation, from father to son, and in some cases daughters. That was their inheritance, and that's the very word that is used here by Peter. And that would certainly bring the land of Canaan to the minds of many of Peter's readers who had a Jewish background and even many Gentiles who had an understanding of the Bible. Well, here it speaks of a heavenly inheritance. That is a portion of the new creation, a portion of the eternal city of God. And here we confess there's much we do not know. We know little glimpses of of these things in the future. The the eternal city, the new new creation, the things that God has prepared for those who are his children. But we know that there is something there and that there is something that is tangible, that is real. In fact, in many ways is more real than that which we experience here upon the earth. Peter's not simply talking about your getting into heaven, your eternal life, your heavenly entrance, because he's talking about something that exists right now in heaven waiting for you, who are the children of God. An inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved now, In heaven, where God is, for you. It's there now. It's there now. Something is there. Your inheritance. Isn't that the kind of language that Jesus used in John chapter 14 when he said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. A place for you. It's there now. It's in heaven. Christ has prepared it. It exists. It's waiting 
for the children of God. It is a real inheritance. We must be born again to receive that inheritance, but this is more than simply the life which we now possess. This is something more than simply making it into heaven, into the presence of God. There's some inheritance there now for the children of God. And so in that respect, it is like an earthly inheritance. But in most respects, it is unlike any earthly inheritance. And most of what Peter says to describe this inheritance, he says by way of contrast with things upon the earth. God, who has begotten us again to a living hope, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And so in most respects, our heavenly inheritance is unlike any earthly inheritance. In fact, there are at least four contrasts which Peter paints here between earthly inheritances and heavenly ones, between the inheritance of Canaan by the children of Israel and the inheritance of heaven by the children of God. And the first three of these contrasts are given to us in the form of an adjective, all of which have an, an un or something similar to that in front of it. They're, they're negative adjectives. Our heavenly inheritance is uncorruptible, undefiled, unfading. Uncorruptible, which changes into incorruptible as we fine-tune the English language, but the idea is it is not susceptible to death, to destruction. It does not contain any intrinsic seeds of death or decay. It is uncorruptible. It is imperishable. In this respect, it is like God himself. Everything that we know, everything in our experience in this world, has within it the seeds of decay. Everything is decaying. Certainly our bodies, right? Certainly our bodies, they're decaying, they're wearing out. That's why we read lists of people who have illnesses and operations to repair these bodies. We, we keep them going as long as we can, but they just keep wearing out. They keep wearing out faster than we can repair them. And they keep wearing out faster than medical science has knowledge to repair them. And they keep decaying and wearing out faster than, than uh, we can keep up with them until eventually they fail. But that's not only true of our bodies. That's true of everything in this world in which we live. Everything is wearing out and decaying. Why is it that we have to keep working on our church building? After, you know, we built this beautiful facility and it looked so nice, but it doesn't stay that way. And we have to constantly repair and replace and paint and, and uh, scrub and, and uh, tear up and redo. And it's that way at your house and it's that way at your job and it's that way with your automobile. And it's that way with everything in this whole world because everything that is material has the very seeds of decay and destruction Within it, it's part of the very nature of the whole universe in which we live. But not this inheritance. Not this one. 
Everything in the world is corruptible. Not this one. It's incorruptible. And secondly, it's undefiled. And that means unstained by sin. That means it is incapable of being spoiled or corrupted or polluted by sin, by, by anything that is defiling, anything that is unholy, anything that is displeasing to God. It not only starts out without any of that, but it is incapable of being corrupted by that. That reminds me of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ upon the earth, who though he took upon him the form of a man, nevertheless was incapable of being corrupted. That's why he could touch lepers and not be corrupted by their leprosy as others would be. That's why he could touch sinners and not be ceremonially defiled as others would be. He was incorruptible and undefilable. And the inheritance which God has prepared for his children in heaven is like that too. And in that is like God himself. But remember this. That's a wonderful thing that our inheritance has these these characteristics. But remember this. It not only is unstained by sin, but it cannot be enjoyed by souls that are stained by sin. The heavenly inheritance being incorruptible and undefiled, cannot be entered into by those who are corruptible and defiled. That's why we need an operation upon our souls if we're going to inherit this wonderful blessing. And thirdly, it is unfading, incapable of fading. Think of a flower in the in its most beautiful state, in its most pristine beauty. You look at that fresh, beautiful flower. It is an incredible work of God, an incredible design of God. And yet, you can't keep it that way. Men are getting better at, at, at uh, mimicking God's beautiful creation by making artificial flowers, but they're never, never, never as beautiful as the real thing. And even artificial ones, though they last longer, they don't stay the same forever. After a while, they look kind of run down and dusty and dirty and worn, and they have to be replaced. You see, everything in this world fades. It might start out with a certain level of beauty and attractiveness, but it always runs down. It always fades. But this heavenly inheritance does not fade. It's incapable of fading. That means it never loses its charm. It's always going to be delightful. You'll never be delighted with it one day and then become tired of it the next. You won't be enamored with it now and then not so excited about it in a few weeks or months as happens to virtually everything upon the earth because that's just the nature of the world in which we live. We get our hopes up about something and we think that's going to delight, but the delight always fades. It always fades. Haven't you learned that yet? It always fades. It's never as delightful in the passing of time as you thought it was going to be. But this heavenly inheritance is not like that. We're looking in this world for eternal youth. It's not found anywhere, but that's the description of this heavenly inheritance. It will not fade. This is the fountain of youth. 
This is the thing that is eternally new, that is eternally perfect. Nothing in this world starts out actually perfect, but we start out with the closest we can get to perfection, and we look at it and we say, wow, isn't that great? But it never stays that way. It just all, it's all downhill from there. But not this heavenly inheritance. It's going to start out at real perfection, the very peak of perfection, and never run down from there. It's incorruptible. It's undefiled. It's unfading. Someone said it is therefore death-proof, sin-proof, time-proof. That's right. But isn't it a testimony to the reign of sin in our world that the only way really that you can describe this heavenly inheritance is in negatives, in contrast with the present world? It's unlike this world. That's that's about the best we can say for it. And and that is the best we can say for it. It is unlike this world. Thank God it is unlike this world. It's unlike anything earthly. The fourth contrast is in its otherworldly location. Everything that we're familiar with is connected to the earth in some way. But this inheritance, we are told, is reserved in heaven. Out of reach. (laughs) From defiling forces of every kind. Reserved in heaven. Superior to Canaan in every way. The Old Testament Jews inherited the land of Canaan. But that, you see, was upon the earth. The Old Testament Jews received the land of Canaan as their inheritance, but that was not kept. That was not reserved on earth for them. They had it for a while, but pretty soon the Assyrians came along, and then the Babylonians came along, and then the Greeks came along, and the Romans came along, and a few others in between, and they kept snatching it and taking it and spoiling it. And that was even after the Israelites had worked like crazy just to keep it up. You know, they inherited it, but they had to maintain it. It kept running down. But this heavenly inheritance is not in this world. It is kept in heaven for you. And so the nature of this heavenly inheritance is, number one, it is similar to an earthly inheritance. Number two, it is unlike any earthly inheritance. And number three... It is a source of constant hope. And this takes us back into verse 3. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And think about those phrases. The one in verse 4, reserved in heaven for you. And the one in verse 3, the living hope. You see, this is a personal promise. It is reserved in heaven for you, says Peter, in a surprising switch from us to you. He normally talks in terms of us, but now he changes and talks in terms of you, obviously for emphasis. He wants them to feel the personal nature of it. He wants this to grab them in a personal way. This is not just some general promise, though of course it is a general promise to all the people of God, but he wants every one of his readers to feel this as a personal promise made by God to you in Jesus Christ. God chose Israel for an inheritance in Canaan. God chose you for an inheritance in heaven. 
wonder of wonders. And this, therefore, should be a personal stimulant. It ought to be a living hope. We were born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope, a, a joyful anticipation of what God has in store for us. God's children are delivered from hopelessness that consumes, that characterizes the world. One area of hope and excitement dashed after another all through life. We look at young people with some degree of envy because they haven't had their hopes dashed as often as we have yet. They still have some anticipation. They still have some, some excitement about life. But without Christ, that gets dashed pretty quickly. Is your hope in your wealth? You're a fool. That can be taken from you. And even if it's not, it doesn't give you the pleasure that you thought it was going to when you were going after it. Is your hope in your youth? You're a fool if it is because you can't keep it. Try as you might, you can't keep it. Try all the products, all the nutrition, all the vitamins, all the diets, all the exercise. You might keep it a little bit longer that way, but we're only talking about just a few short years more at the most. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's gone. It's, it's a done deal. It's gone. Don't put your hope in that. Is your hope in, in worldly pleasure? Well, that's a foolish thing to put your hopes and expectations in because you will soon find out that those pleasures that you thought were so delightful and that you wanted so much, they don't bring the satisfaction that you thought they would. What a fool to put your hopes in those things that soon tarnish and destroy you in the process of pursuing them. Not only lose their luster, but they take their toll upon your soul and upon your body. How foolish to live for a hope like that. Well, may God therefore give us a real hope, a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope that that is alive within us and it continues to grow and develop. It grows stronger year by year by year as we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Is this living hope within you? Are you looking forward to things above, not upon things on the earth? If not, why not? If not, what does that say about the condition of your soul? This is a living hope that will enable you to face death with joy because death is just moving to the next stage of full salvation. You are, that's a promotion. That's an advancement from stage one to stage two as you await the fullness of what God has for you. You see, Christians may suffer in this life. And have little future in this life. Many of the 
people that Peter was writing to were in that category. They had been scattered. They had lost their jobs, their homes. Many, no doubt, had been scattered from Rome with the persecution that came upon Christians there. And they were living in very difficult circumstances, and they didn't see much hope, much future in this world. Peter says, that's nothing. Don't worry about that. You have an inheritance in heaven, uh, an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, reserved in heaven for you. That's where your hope lies. There is waiting a reward for you that's as real as the reward that Israel was anticipating in the land of Canaan, but it's far more valuable than that, and it's far more permanent than that. Set your affection on things above. But the third question is, how are we preserved to receive this inheritance? And we read in verse 5, "...who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation." ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, not only is the inheritance kept by the power of God, but we are kept by the power of God for the inheritance. Good thing we'd never make it otherwise. We we are creatures of earth. We are children of Adam. We are dying day by day. But in Christ, we have been given divine life. And in the power of God, we are preserved. We are preserved until we can receive that heavenly inheritance. We're preserved by the power of God. We are kept, which is a military term. Kept by the power of God. That's a word that means prevented from escaping. And a word that means protected from danger. Soldiers who kept kept prisoners, kept them from escaping, and kept anyone else from endangering them. And that's the same idea here. God is keeping our heavenly inheritance. In other words, there's no way we can fail to receive it if we are God's true children. God will keep us from all that would threaten to undo us, and God will even keep us from our own sinful corruption that would threaten to undo us from within. We are kept... We are kept by the power of God, kept from escaping, thank God, because this is God's work. Kept from dangers, from Satan, from temptation, from sin, from defilement, from destruction, from hell. We're kept from all of that by the power of an omnipotent God. Here's the promise of omnipotent preservation. But how are we kept? This is important. We are preserved through an active faith who are kept by the power of God through faith. Through faith. And that's not only a promise of what God will do and continue to do in the lives of His children. Oh, keep us, Lord, keep us cleaving to Thyself and still believing. But this is also a description of those for whom the inheritance is reserved. You see, not everybody talking about heaven is going there. Who's going there? Those who continue to have a living, active, vital faith. Not, have you believed, but are you believing? Not, have you made a decision, but are you continuing to follow Christ? Are you continuing to believe? Are you growing in your faith? That's the question. Because if you are, you evidently are a child of God. Because God is preserving His children through faith. That's the way He preserves us. He keeps us. Believing. He keeps us cleaving. 
He keeps us moving forward toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He keeps us on the path of of righteousness. He keeps us on the narrow way. He keeps us in faith, an active, living, growing faith. God does that for all of his children who shall inherit this great reward. Is that your condition? Does that describe you? Are you being preserved by God through faith? Is your faith real, alive, growing, developing? If it's divine faith, if it's true saving faith, then it is of that character because God is doing that in your soul. And it is preserved until the time of inheritance shall arrive. We're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. With earthly inheritances, generally there's an appointed time. Most often it comes at the death of the testator, the one who included others in his will. And when he or she dies, that then the time has come. The time for the inheritance has come. Sometimes it comes at another appointed time. Maybe a certain age. Did you read about the hillbilly who died and left all of his inheritance to his widow, but she couldn't touch it until she was 16? (laughs) So sometimes there's a stipulation (laughs) and a point in time. And God has guaranteed to preserve this inheritance until the appointed time. And that time is when Christ comes again. That's when we'll receive this inheritance. Well, when we die, we'll be with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But dying and going to heaven is not the time to receive this inheritance promised here. We'll receive many wonderful things. We'll receive many wonderful joys, no doubt about it. But the inheritance of which Peter speaks awaits the coming of Christ. That's what's ready to be revealed at the last time. That's what he says in verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's referred to again in verse verse 12. This inheritance kept in heaven for you is kept until Christ comes again and is revealed to the universe. And until that time, it's kept beyond the reach of destructive powers. It's kept in heaven. It's kept by the omnipotent power of God. It is kept, a word that has reference to what was completed in the past and has continuing results. This inheritance has been kept. It has been It has been established by God, and it is continuing to be protected by God until the day of our receiving. That's a pretty good guarantee. I don't know of any earthly inheritances that have that guarantee. Some of us have known times when people had were named in a will, waiting their inheritance, but then that that legacy was dissolved. It was it dwindled away. It was destroyed before the people that it was was supposed to be given to, ever received it. It was gone. Not this one. Not this one. It's kept by the power of God, reserved in heaven for you. 
And therefore, these things being true, we need to focus on a couple of important lessons. The first one is our need to be weaned from an earthly focus. Our need to be weaned from an earthly focus. We're far too earthbound. And the more we possess here in this life, the greater our need to deliberately, intentionally struggle to fasten our hope upon things eternal. Because the more we have of this world, the more we are tempted to fasten our affections upon things below. I think that's one of the reasons for the low spiritual condition generally in the United States of America today. We who have been so blessed by God, and really have been, when you compare with with people over the centuries past, when you compare with the with the most of the population in the world even today, everyone in here is a wealthy person compared to the most of the population in the world today, the millions, the billions of people around the world. There's only a very small percentage that have anything like real comfortable living. And all of us do, even the poorest of us here, have what would be considered great wealth in in so many other places. But the very blessings which God has bestowed, which ought to stir us up to greater love and adoration and worship and service of God, have instead caused us to become independent and proud and materialistic and to live our lives for things now and to ignore God. Dear child of God, don't let that happen. You see, if you don't have much, this heavenly inheritance is a great hope. It's a wonderful, comforting hope. I have nothing in this world, but I have a great inheritance in the world to come. I'm suffering now, but I won't suffer then. The sufferings of this present time are are little in comparison with what I'm going to receive when this is over. So I can bear the suffering and the deprivation now. I don't have to worry about my impoverished state now. What difference does that make? I have an inheritance in heaven. But if you have a lot, then the heavenly inheritance can easily become a matter indifferent. So what? Well, that's nice. I guess we'll find out about it someday. We don't want to spend any time thinking about it, longing for it, moving toward it. Instead of becoming a living hope, a strong living hope, it seems to become a weak hope. To the world, the solution to all of human problems is money, more money. Crime, it's because people are poor. They need more money. Lack of education, it's because there's not enough money invested in education. Need more money. Need more money. Need more money. Need more money. Uh, Problems, class envy in the world, it's because the money isn't equally distributed. We need to take some away from these people and give it to these people over there. That'll solve the problem. The, The right distribution of money, the right production of money, People having the right amount of money, that's the answer. That's the only answer that, that the unconverted world can come up with. That becomes the solution for everything, doesn't it? But God tells us that money is the source of most human problems. Not all of them, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And one of those problems is that it tends to dull our desire for this heavenly inheritance. We don't look for it as eagerly as we should because we're too comfortable now. We're enjoying our present circumstances, our present prospects, our present hopes too much now. So we're not longing for that heavenly inheritance. 
if that's true of you, it's probably true to some degree of all of us, to whatever degree that's true of you, you need to ask God to get your attention off of the things of earth and to stir up holy, ardent desires for heavenly things, for that which is eternal. And the second lesson we need to learn is that none can inherit what we're talking about today but the pure in heart. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This heavenly inheritance is undefiled. This heavenly inheritance shall not become defiled. This heavenly inheritance shall not be entered into by those whose hearts are defiled. Only those who are pure in heart can receive and enjoy this heavenly inheritance. And yet the dilemma is, of course, that none of us are pure in heart of ourselves. Now we've got a problem. This inheritance can be enjoyed only by those who are pure in heart, but none of us are of ourselves pure in heart. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What shall we do? What can we do? And that brings us back to Christ all over again. Cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ because in Him there's cleansing. Those who are cleansed by the blood of Christ in our souls, they are made pure. And they are, therefore, made by God, enabled to inherit this inheritance undefiled, unpolluted, unfading. And so, dear friends, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? For there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, all their pollution and moral defilement, and then are given a heavenly inheritance and are kept and preserved for it until the day of its bestowment. Shall we pray? O Lord, Wean us away from the things of this world. They too easily wrap themselves around our heart's affections. Lord, give us a greater desire for that which is to come, for Christ himself most of all, but to realize there is a wonderful inheritance that we are going to receive as our portion of that great eternal city which you have prepared, that wonderful country that is incorruptible and undefiled and reserved in heaven for us. Lord, we can scarcely imagine what that will be like, but we know it's got to be great beyond all comprehension. It is as majestic and wonderful as God himself. Oh, Lord God, help us to desire that more than anything and help us to live in the light of that desire. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.